You're listening to the Eagles Insider Podcast. Now here's your host, Chris McPherson. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of the Eagles Insider Podcast, a Hall of Fame-worthy edition of the podcast. Yes, the Eagles are inducting linebacker Jeremiah Trotter and the voice of the Eagles, Merrill Reese. I will spare you from doing any cheap You're going to break into one there, C-Mac. Slightly, you know, no, 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 no. I have enough respect for Merrill, and I know for a fact that I cannot do it. Especially so. on this week as he's going into the Eagles Hall of Fame. Let's leave that out of the picture. Exactly. So, big game against the Packers on Monday night, but our podcast this week is focused on the two Hall of Fame inductees. Great in-studio interviews with each of them, so we hope that you enjoy it. We're going to start things off with Jeremiah Trotter. Now, as I was getting into the business, Jeremiah Trotter was a young linebacker coming into his own, and it was amazing seeing Trotter in the middle of the Eagles' defenses of the early 2000s with such great leaders on those teams with Troy Vincent, Brian Dawkins, and Trotter was just as important to those teams as those other guys who I mentioned who are also in the Eagles' Hall of Fame. And it was such a dominating force, and it's amazing how Jim Johnson, the late great defensive coordinator, helped bring out the beast who was Jeremiah Trotter and helped make him the playmaker in those Eagles defenses. Now, Alex, for you as a fan, Mm -hmm. what was it like watching those Eagles defenses from afar back then? Yeah, it's interesting because you said, you know, as you were getting into the business, he was kind of this young linebacker. For me, it was as I was just getting into football. I mean, I'm kind of dating myself a little bit, but right around that 2000, 2001 season, that's really when I really started getting into football and watching the Eagles religiously. And Jeremiah Trotter was the man on that defense, along with, you know, other great players, Brian Dawkins and guys like Hugh Douglas up front. But mm-hmm. Jeremiah Trotter was the guy. He was the man in the middle. He kind of controlled the traffic out there. So for me as a fan, just kind of, absorbing everything that I could and learning everything that I could about that Eagles team, he was the guy on defense. He set the tone and you see him out there swinging the axe and all the things that he did. So for me, when I think of Eagles linebackers, he's almost the first thing that comes to mind because he's the one that I kind of learned the game through. So to have him in studio and to have him interview him, just a really neat experience for me to be able to speak to him. Four-time Pro Bowl linebacker, anchor of those early 2000 Eagles teams, earned a Pro Bowl honors when he regained the starting middle linebacker position for that 2004 NFC Championship win over the Atlanta Falcons, which he said might have been the best game of his entire career. So our first of two interviews here on this week's edition of the podcast are in studio 101 with Philadelphia Eagles Hall of Fame linebacker Jeremiah Trotter. Trot, so good to see you, have you here in studio with your Hall of Fame induction a short time away. And it's fun for me because I remember covering you back in the day, and I was a thorn in your side to the point where it would be like, Trot, do you have one question? Do you have one one second? He would look at me and be like, you know it's not going to be one question. Right, you know right, it's not going to be the case. <laughs> so usually you saw me, you turn the other way and be like, I'm not doing that. But Trot, I want to start, start off with, can you take me to where you were, describe the situation Paint a picture of when you got the call that you were going to be inducted into the team's Hall of Fame. You know what? I was in Florida with my boys. My youngest son, Josiah, had a basketball tournament down in Florida. He was down there for a whole week. I was in the hotel room, and Jeffrey gave me a call. Broke the news to me. Got a little smile on your face. Yeah, yeah. You know what? When he first called me, you know, it's kind of like you're surprised, but you're not surprised. And you're excited, and you don't really know what to think at the time. You know, I kind of started the process, my wife and I getting our list together and stuff like that. And it still really hadn't hit me. I think as we get closer, Westbrook texted me yesterday and said, yo, man, it's almost here. You're getting excited. <laughs> so now it's really, really starting to hit me. It was a great feeling when Jeffrey gave me a call, man, and 
it just shows that all the hard work you put in paid off and people recognize that. That's a great feeling. Did you take time after your career ended to think about your legacy, to think about the mark that you left here on this organization? I did. I did. Because sometimes when you're playing and you're younger, you really don't have an opportunity. You're so focused. It's almost like you're programmed. Off-season, you stand in shape. Training camp, you're out there working, trying to get in shape for the season. Then season is week to week. You go from one opponent to the next. Everything is just laid out for you. And you kind of go through that your whole career. And you never really have a time and opportunity to really reflect on how rare it is to just to make it to the NFL. Not to stay, just to get in the door. And it's even tougher to stay, especially, you know, a guy like myself that played 11 seasons, you know, coming in, had a messed up knee, which most teams failed me on my physical. Some teams took me from being in the first round to completely off the board and didn't have the Eagles take a chance on me and draft me in the third round. Amazing feeling. So I really had an opportunity, man, just to sit back and like, man, coming out of Hooks, Texas, population about 2,700, and to make it to the NFL on a national stage, man, it was a great feat. I feel very humbled and blessed to be able to get to that point. What was life like in Hooks, Texas? <laughs> Hooks, Texas. Really wasn't much, too, much of life. I mean, <laughs> it's just like any other typical town, small. Everybody pretty much knew everybody. All about football. Friday nights, I mean, literally the whole town was shut down. My dad and I worked hard growing up, you know, and that was pretty much it. You went to school and you raised your family. My mom still lives there, so I love going back, visiting everybody. Just a small, typical town. So your hometown helped provide your nickname, the Axeman. Right. Can you tell fans, you know, I'm sure most do know, but can you shed some light to those who don't, who are listening? Well, how did you get the nickname, the Axeman? Well, I grew up chopping firewood with my dad. So those days, those long, hot summers, 105, 110 degrees in that, in that summer Texas heat molded me until the person you see now and the person you saw play on Sundays. Once I kind of started to make a name for myself my second year, I would see guys around the league doing a signature move. You see Brian Dawkins coming out the tunnel crawling. You know, he was a Wolverine. And I said, man, I want to do something. <laughs> you know, what can I, I didn't know what I wanted to do, so I kind of prayed about it. And I said, you know what, man? You know, I grew up chopping wood. I could do the axe. I definitely know how to do that, you know? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I tried it one game, and it kind of stuck, and we just rolled with it. I've seen other players try to do the axe move as well. Do you kind of take that as a sign of respect, or do you think that you're the original guy? It's kind <laughs> I, of your move. OG. <laughs> I take yeah, the OG, right? I take it as a compliment. I remember one game a couple years ago when I was the captain, so I did the coin toss, and I think D'Amico came out the tunnel and did the axe chop. That's awesome. Sign of respect, man, and every time I see something like that, I'm humbled by it. When the news broke this year, we had the event at the stadium. Tullet came up to me, and Kendricks came up to me and said, yo, congratulations, man, big fans. Stuff like that means a lot when the younger guys are watching you play and admiring your game, and I admire that game from afar also. So yeah, it means a lot when guys recognize what you did in your career. How much of an impact did your father, Myra, have on you? I can't talk about this guy enough. I mean, my dad, everything I know, learn from him. Just learn how to be a man. I mean, you're talking about a kid that worked beside his dad every day of his life. From the time I can tote a stick of wood as small as you can think of, until I left to go to college. You know, I worked beside my dad every day. And he taught me everything just about life. Working hard, anything you want, you got to you work hard to get it. Nobody's going to give you anything. Just always do your best. Learn how to respect others and demand respect from others also. So, you know, he instilled a lot of things in me that I instill in my kids today. He's my biggest hero. How difficult was it when he passed away on the eve of your rookie minicamp after being a third-round pick of the Eagles? <laughs> 
man, I've never before that or since then encountered anything as tough as that. It's always tough when you lose a loved one, but when you have a relationship the way I had with him, man, it was tough, man, because he was the man of the house, the rock, and all of a sudden now I'm the man of the house, and your family members are looking to you to be, you know, that guy, and you're still, you're just turning 20. When that happened, I really lost my desire to play football. I remember being in camp. Times I would just be staring into the distance, just kind of like daydreaming. You know, I kind of got behind, you know, in the NFL, once you get behind, it's tough to catch up. And I remember just going back to the, to the hotel room and burying my face into the pillow and just crying for hours. The only thing really kept me going, I promised him that before he died, that I would take care of my mom. So I couldn't quit. So I just went back to some of the things he instilled in me when I was young. Just go to work, man. Just keep working. Focus on your job. I just kept working every day, working every day. Even when I, when I made the team, a lot of people felt like I shouldn't have made the team because things was going so bad for me. And I just kept working. I didn't listen to all the negative things. And just put my nose down to the ground and just kept working, man, and just kept praying, and things worked out for me. I remember when I went into, um, it wasn't Heckert. What was the guy that was in the front office with the Eagles back Modrak. then? Modrak. Tom Modrak. I remember going into his office after the season. I guess they meet with everybody, talk about your future and plans they have for you. So I went into the office after the season. He sat me down. You know, I was nervous just like any other young guy. And he said, hey, you ended the season good. He said, we got big plans for you for the future. And I gave him a look like, for real? <laughs> <You know? laughs> I was like, for real? He's like, yeah, we got big plans for you. So just keep working. Be here in the offseason, working out with the team. I was like, man, you ain't got to worry about that. I'm going to be here every day. That really helped me. I look back and I think about James Willis. I came in. They drafted me to replace James Willis. And obviously it didn't work out my rookie year. And then my rookie year was bad for me. But what really helped me one day, I'll never forget this. I was sitting in my locker and James Willis said, trot. You know, um, every year for the last past three years, they drafted a guy to run me out of town. I'm like, oh, for real, man? He was like, yeah. He said, let me tell you something. He said, you're going to be the only guy to do it. He didn't know how much that helped me at the time because I wasn't playing. I wasn't doing good. And for a guy to see that in you at that point, it just gave me motivation to keep working because he saw something in me that I didn't see in myself at the time because I had lost my confidence at one point that will always stick with me as long as I live. I remember that. I don't forgot a lot of stuff just from playing football, but that's one thing I'll never forget. The next year, Andy Reid comes in, and he brings Jim Johnson with him to be his defensive coordinator. What did that hire do for you and for your career? At the time, I didn't know. <laughs> I didn't know much about Jim Johnson. I knew that was changing of the guard. And just like any other young player, you're like, shoot, new coaches coming in. I'm not their draft pick. I'm not their guy. But Jim came, and he was preaching, attacking, attacking, downhill, attacking the line of scrimmage, dictating to the offense what we want them to do, not them dictating to us. I was like, man, I like this style of play, you know, attacking downhill. He took a lot of thinking out of it. My rookie year, Emmett Thomas defense, you had to do a lot of thinking. For a rookie coming in, it's tough. It was really only one person on our defense that knew the defense my rookie year. That was Mike Zordich. <laughs> I remember one game, they, um, they took him out and put a younger safety in there because he was getting old at the time. And, man, it was so many blown calls out there. The next week he was back in the lineup. <laughs> so, and Jim come in, and I remember I was downhill. And teams would run play action because I was so physical playing downhill. And Jim Johnson said, listen told Willie T, when Trot go down here to blow the fullback up, you just cover his back. And he allowed me to be aggressive. And then as I got better and I started to read offenses better, 
I could read between the pass and the run and, and all the things they were trying to do. But he just took what we did best. He took what I did best and just kind of built the defense around that. And then he did the same thing with Dawkins. What was your relationship like with him away from the field? Obviously, he meant so much to you as a player and bringing out the best of your talent. But what was the relationship in the meeting rooms and outside the football field? I remember one time, me and Jim, we stayed into it all the time. I remember one time we got into it in practice, and Andy Reid told us, he said, man, y'all two guys are like two old women. Y'all always stay in <laughs> But, man, there was a mutual respect there. I remember on Mondays and Tuesdays when everybody else was home, I was up here breaking down tape. I would go ahead and talk to Jim on Mondays and Tuesdays about the game plan, especially on Tuesdays because Tuesdays he would be somewhat three-quarters done with the game plan. And I would go in and sit down with him and, he would bounce ideas off of me, and that meant a lot to me. It meant a lot because it showed that he trusted me, he listened to me. You know, obviously I had to earn that. And one thing I, I like talking to Jim about, if you wanted to see him smile, all you had to do was bring up his grandchildren. He talked about his grandchildren, his face would light up like a Christmas tree. So Jim didn't smile a lot. So every now and then I was, hey, how's the grandkids? Just to get him to smile, you know. <laughs> Those Jim Johnson defenses are so renowned here in Philadelphia, and you were obviously a big part of them. What was it about that defense that made it so great? Was it the scheme? Was it the players? It seemed like it was the perfect combination of both. It was both. It was definitely both. Obviously, any coach with common sense to tell you you need players in order to be successful. But you also need a great minds, too. And Jim Johnson was one of the greatest minds to ever coach in the NFL. I believe Jim is a Hall of Famer. Some of the blitzes that he ran way back then, people are still trying to duplicate now. When I tell you, he, he had a very complex mind. He, he knew the zone protection, the scan protection. I mean, he knew how to get to the quarterback. It was only one guy. It was only one guy in my entire career that I saw scared Jim out of blitzing. Tom Brady. No. Kurt Warner. Nope. Michael Vick. Nope. Peyton Manning. He was uh, the only guy that. It's a chess match. Exactly. Jim had the philosophy, you win by the blitz, you die by the blitz. That's what we did best, and we did it all the time. We were going to bring heat. If you was third and over five, we was coming. <laughs> Teams knew we was coming, and there's nothing they could do. And he had the personnel to stop it. The cornerbacks, they knew they were flat foot read on third and long because they knew the ball had to come out quick. And when we got to Indianapolis, man, that week, we wouldn't run no blitzes. And we would look at each other like, uh-oh. Because <laughs> if you're going to go down, you got to go down with what you do best. Yeah. You know? So we used to crack jokes a lot. Hey, Jim, you ain't running no blitzes this week? <laughs> We just get a kick out of that. You left after the 2001 season to go to Washington. You spent a couple of years there. Right. How tough was it to summon the courage to make that call to Andy Reid? The forge a path that led you coming back to Philadelphia. It wasn't tough. I mean, because my heart was always here in Philly. Even when I was with the Redskins those two years, I try not to remember those two years. Same here. <laughs> same on our end, yes. Yeah. You had to bring it up, didn't you? Yes. Um, but it wasn't tough because my heart was always here. I made a financial decision, and if I had to do it all over again, I would like to say I would have made the same decision, but I don't know because you know, I was able to set my family up for, for life with that move. No, it wasn't hard, man. I, my heart was always here, and when I came back, it was just amazing just to see the reaction of the fan base, how they received me. They say sometimes you don't miss what you have until you're gone, and I think it worked on my behalf and it worked on the Eagles' behalf and the fans. So I think everyone had an opportunity to kind of see what they had with that transition. So you come back for the 2004 season and you guys go on the incredible run to the Super Bowl, win the NFC Championship game in front of the home crowd here. What was that run like from your perspective? Man, it was amazing. 
as a defensive guy, you sit on the sideline and you're looking at T.O. run out of the tunnel. You're looking at Donovan run out the tunnel. Andy coming out of the tunnel. Who was on that offense that year? B. West was there. B. West. You're looking at B. West. Chad Lewis. B. West. Donovan, B. West, T.O. I mean, that's enough right there. (laughs) I mean, and then you on defense, you know you're going to be up 21-0 in no time. I mean, I remember times early in the second quarter, the defensive line was over there talking about, I'm about to get me two sacks. So, you know, I was talking to Hugh and all them guys like, listen, guys, give me one more quarter, plan the run. Then from there on out, you can pin your ears back. I'll play the run by myself, you know. So, and he would always be, no, forget you, Try. I'm going to get a sack now, you know. <laughs> Trot, last question for you is now that some time has passed, you walk around the building here at the NovaCare Complex, and outside the auditorium, there's four pictures of four great players in franchise history, and you running out of the tunnel is one of them. What does that mean to you? <laughs> it means a lot. You know, you walk through these corridors, through these halls, and you see your Pro Bowl pictures up, and you see that picture hanging up in there, and all the young guys, they meet every morning, and they go right in there. They look at those photos as they go into the auditorium. It means a lot. Just being thankful that I'm part of the Eagles history, place where my heart is. I stayed here. My family's here. My friends are here. My church is here. I'm part of the community. I just can't say enough about how much I'm honored and appreciative for the Philadelphia Eagles, Jeffrey Lurie, and all the people that played a major role you know, in my success, Andy Reid, Jim Johnson, Steve Spagnuolo, and not to mention all of my countless teammates that helped me get to where I am now because I couldn't make plays by myself. It was those guys out there sacrificing. It's going to be exciting to see a lot of those guys come back because they're just as much a part of this honor as I am. Trot, congrats, brother. Thank you very Congratulations. much. Congratulations. It was so great to hear those stories from Jeremiah Trotter. Now, before we get into our interview with the voice of the Eagles, Merrill Reese, we want to tell all of you Eagles fans out there that Eagles Fantasy Camp is the ultimate football experience for any Eagles fan. Learn the X's and O's of the game from Eagles greats like John Runyon, Chad Lewis, among many others, as you live out your football dreams at Lincoln Financial Field. Learn more today at eaglesfantasycamp.com. And with the holidays fast approaching, this could be the perfect gift for that Eagles fan in your life. So, fascinating, phenomenal interview with Trotter. Now let's get into the voice of the Eagles, Merrill Reese. And for me, I've gotten to know him from working here. It's like you're with him on a day-in, day-out basis. You know, when I traveled to the road games for many years, we'd be together on the buses and, you know, we'd be sharing stories about our love for Boston Terriers and different things of that nature. It's like I see him through a different prism than most Eagles fans. Mm -hmm. So as someone who grew up cheering for the Eagles, what has Merrill Reese meant to you, Alex? I mean, for me, Merrill is an absolute inspiration because, you know, someone like me who always wanted to get into the sports media industry, get into broadcasting, I would hear Merrill Reese and that was who I wanted to be. That's the dream job, what Merrill has. And if you ever talk to him about it, and we did talk to him about it, he knows that he has the dream job and he loves every single game that he gets to cover, every single day he gets to be here for practice. You know, to hear the excitement in his voice every single game, it's really incredible and he's the best. I mean, for me, when I went to college and I wanted to get into broadcasting, I was asked, you know, who are your favorite broadcasters? Who do you listen to? And for me, it was Harry Callis and it's Merrill Reese, two outstanding broadcasters. And Merrill's as good of a person as he is a broadcaster. So uh, I was really excited to be able to sit down with him and talk to him for this podcast. And I really learned a lot about his career. Well said about the man who Merrill Reese is on top of the ultimate professional mm-hmm. that he is in this business. So with that being said, here's our interview with the GOAT, the voice of the Eagles Hall of Fame, 
broadcaster Meryl Reese. I'll be honest, I'm a little intimidated. Because, you be. <laughs> see, I, I can't win here. Obviously, a Hall of Famer, but one of the true icons in this business, Meryl Reese. And it's an absolute honor to be standing here next to you, being able to do this interview on the eve of your Hall of Fame induction. Paint the picture of what it was like when you got the call from Jeffrey Lurie that you were going to be placed oh, in the Hall it, of Fame. It was unbelievable. I'm figuring, what is Jeffrey calling me for? <laughs> and, and then I thought, well, maybe maybe he wants to invite me to play some golf with some of his friends. Okay, you know. And uh, that's really nice because I would be happy to play golf. But when he said that I was going into the Eagles Hall of Fame, I got emotional. I really did. I never thought about anything like that. All I think about is doing the games. I don't do the games for a reward or for an honor or for to go into halls of fame or to get stories written about me. I do them because I just love, love to broadcast Eagles football. And from the time I was a kid, from the time I realized that I wasn't going to quarterback the Eagles someday, I picked the next best thing and that was it. I wanted to be up in that broadcast booth. So here I am being honored for just having the best time that anybody could ever have. I don't want anybody to ever think that this is the culmination, then I can retire and ride over to the sunset. No, Because I want to do this for the next ever. This is what I love to do. It never gets old, does it, Mario? No. It's more fun every single year because I know this is going to sound funny, but when they talk about athletes, when they talk about a quarterback, when they talk about a wide receiver, they talk about the game slowing down that the, the young quarterback comes in the league and he sees all these linebackers buzzing around and he looks downfield like, boy, I better get rid of the ball fast. And it's the same as a broadcaster. When you come in and you're describing everything and you've got to pick up the formation and you've got to see what the motion is and the, the down, the distance, I call it the STDD, score, time, down, distance, all that stuff. You've got to have that all going through your head at the same time. And then the more you do it, and believe me, it's a process, and it changes and it gets a little... Every year that I do a game, I feel like I see more of the field, that the game slows down, that I don't have to race through everything. There's plenty of time if you just keep your composure and describe what you see, and maybe you train yourself to look at certain parts of the field. You turn yourself to look quickly at the safeties right before the snap, while before you would never, ever glance away for a single second. So it becomes more fun and more fulfilling, and I totally love it. So. The notification that I'm going into the Hall of Fame of the Eagles is the greatest honor of my life, the greatest honor, and I was emotional, and it means so much, but I do this because I just love broadcasting Eagles football, and I love the Eagles fans. Merrill, you're simply the best, and what's astounding to me is that I learned that you still get nervous on game days after all these years. Sure. But you're phenomenal at what you do. You bring the energy. You bring well, that, the passion. That's nice of you to say. But you know what? I have given seminars over the years on oral presentations. You know, a lot of people are nervous about public speaking. And the first thing I say to them is, I want you to know something. When I get up to speak, I'm nervous. I can feel that until I start. And why? The answer is why. And this is the same with any, any athlete. I guarantee you, Carson Wentz, as calm as he seems for a young quarterback, he feels it right before the game. You know my off-the-air passion is golf. Yes. And I play in area tournaments, and I play in a Tuesday night men's league. On that first tee, I can feel that. I can feel really? that, the first tee jitters. 
And the greatest player who ever lived, not in terms of career accomplishments, because that was Jack Nicholas, but nobody ever played this game at a higher level than Tiger Woods. And Tiger Woods would tell people that he's very nervous on that first tee. You get that first tee shot out of the way. And that's how it is with broadcasting. I wake up on the day of a game, and the moment my eyes open, I know it's a game day because I can feel jittery. And if we're home, my wife will make me a stack of pancakes that will hold me for the whole day because I can't look at food once I come to the stadium. Not even the whole day. That's it. (laughs) Until the game is over. How many pancakes does Cindy make? Big stack. (laughs) Enough till I can't breathe. (laughs) But, But I can eat my stack of pancakes and read the newspaper and go over some things. But that has to sustain me until the game is over. And even back at the hotel, I'll have breakfast with Mike Quick and Joe McPeak, our producer. And Howard Eskin, who does the sidelines, will come over to annoy us. (laughs) (laughs) Glad you said it. (laughs) But even at the hotel, I'll have my breakfast. And it's not always pancakes. It may be an omelet and a couple of pieces of toast, but something to fill me up. But once I get to the stadium, all I can do is I'll go into the booth and I'll feel the nervousness. And I'll look up the field and I'll chart the kickers. And I'll do a little mental play-by-play. I'll actually as they're going through, the wide receivers are running out for the passes. If you're playing the Green Bay Packers, and I'll see number 87 go out, and I'll go, Rodgers throws the ball to Jordy Nelson, and go on and on with that. But it's always the same. And then when Joe says, Joe McPeak says, all right, two minutes, two minutes to airtime, I can feel that bass drum pounding. And then he'll go 60 seconds, and then he'll say, 10 seconds, stand by. And then he will point or tap, or whatever, and then I come on with the game, and all of that nervousness completely vanishes. It's gone, and I'm in a zone for the next three hours until that game is over, and I feel as if I am floating. It's a tremendous thrill every time I get behind the mic, and that is whether it's a preseason game or a Super Bowl. There's no difference in how I feel moments before airtime. So, Merrill, when you first decided that you wanted to be a broadcaster, who were some of your inspirations? Who were the guys that you listened to and said, I want to be like that guy? Well, the, the local guy, and I still think he was the greatest broadcaster in Philadelphia history, was Bill Campbell. Bill Campbell was wonderful. He did, when I was growing up, he did the Eagles. He did the Phillies. He did the Warriors, who preceded the 76ers. He did the 76ers. He did the Penn Relays. He did nightly commentaries. He was a marvelous interviewer. Loved Bill Campbell. I used to go to Franklin Field and watch the Eagles, and I'd have my binoculars and stare up at the broadcast booth between plays and look at Bill Campbell and then go down to the field and and watch what was going on. So Bill Campbell was the guy, and, and we became very, very good friends. And my wife and I were actually two of the few of the non family members who celebrated his 90th birthday with him when Bill and his wife renewed their wedding vows after 50 years, we were there. He was a big part of our life. He and his wife, Joe, became almost like an aunt and uncle. So that was a great thing. But Bill was the local guy. Now, nationally, there was a broadcaster who did Packer games, and he did a lot of television, network television. And not many people, younger people, have heard him. But he was great. He did the first Super Bowl. And his name was Ray Scott. I don't know if any of you ever heard of Ray Scott, but he did play-by-play the way it was meant to be done on television. 
And when he did the Packers, he wouldn't waste words. He would go, star, dollar, touchdown. He was just so precise and concise, and he was great. But it's the radio guys who paint the picture. And to me, nobody did it better than Bill Campbell. Merrill, what I love about your story, your road to becoming the play-by-play voice of the Eagles, is that it wasn't a smooth ride. No. You went through a lot of rejection along the way. Can you tell people about that part of your story, your journey of becoming the voice of the Eagles? Well, I went to Temple University where I majored in communications and quickly by my sophomore year, I was the sports director of the student station. And by the time I was graduating, I thought, I'm pretty much ready for the world. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm big man on campus. I'm, <laughs> I'm doing NIT games and, and NCAA regional games. And I'm doing five basketball games, six basketball games a week because we had a line at the Palestra. So we did everybody. One day I did five games. I did three high school playoff games in the afternoon and a Palestra doubleheader that night. So I'm doing all of that. I'm doing basketball. I'm doing football. I'm doing it all. But of course, there was a little matter of a draft, a military draft at the time. And I was fortunate enough to get into a a Navy program. And I was a Naval Public Affairs officer, came out as a lieutenant senior grade. And again, that added a lot of confidence to you. And I started sending out my things to the networks and I didn't even get anything back. And then I went to the local stations and they would humor me by having the receptionist give me a piece of paper to fill out. And I never heard anything back. And I still couldn't find anything. And finally, I heard about an opening at WCOJ in Coastville, Pennsylvania. So I drove out there and I auditioned. And the station owner, and we'll never forget it, his name was William Halpern. He came out after I auditioned and he said to me, you can't start here. You've got to start someplace small. Now, this is Coatesville, (laughs) Coatesville, Pennsylvania. It was two rooms over a car agency. And, and I've got to go start someplace small. And the funny thing is, years and years and years later, probably 10 years later, and I was already doing the Eagles, I was at a banquet, and this little old man came up to me, and he said, Merrill, and I said, yes. He said, my name is Bill Halpern, and I was wrong. <laughs> so, so then I went to, I had been out of the service for over a year. People were saying to my mother, Helen, when's your kid ever going to get a job? So finally, I heard that A station in Pottstown was looking for somebody to do a high school football game, Pottsgrove versus Springford, on a Saturday afternoon. And I went up there and I spoke with the station owner. His name was Herb Scott. And he said, listen, I give you a chance, but you look like you're about to have a nervous breakdown. And I said, you're probably right. (laughs) And I went home. So Didn't exude confidence there. I had no confidence. At this point, all of my confidence was gone. So Friday afternoon, the phone rang and... Herb Scott said to me, listen, I can find absolutely nobody else to do this game tomorrow. It's between you and dead air. So with that great endorsement, I drove up there and I did the game. And by the time the second half came on, I was really feeling my oats. And Monday morning, he called me to come up and hired me full time. I worked Sunday through Sunday, seven days a week, and made the princely sum of $65. But I had a job. And I was off and running. So, Merrill, I want to ask you about what you say is the best call of your career, and that's the miracle at the new Meadowlands. Is that correct? Well, it was, it was my favorite moment. Favorite moment, favorite okay. Favorite moment, because there are many of them, from the, the original miracle of the Meadowlands to Montgomery against the Dallas Cowboys on January 11th, 1981, and on and on and on. But it was the culmination of the greatest Eagles comeback I've ever seen. 
I mean, they were down by a million points. And I think I said at the end of the first half, the score is the Giants, whatever they had, 24. The Eagles are still at their hotel. And, and then suddenly. They, <laughs> That's why fans love it. Su- suddenly they, that, they came right back. It was Michael Vick to Brent Selleck over the middle, yeah. leaped over a man around 64 yards, recovered an onside kick. Akers kicked it. Riley Cooper picked it up. Vick drove them down again, scored on a quarterback draw. Vic drove them down again, hit Jeremy Macklin inside the left pylon, and it all came down to the Giants holding the Giants, which they did, and the Meadowlands was quiet there at Giants Stadium, since been named MetLife. And then the Giants punter went back, and I will never, ever, ever forget. And Mike Quick said there's no way they punt to Deshaun Jackson with seconds left, and he did. And Deshaun looked up, And he muffed the punt, which I think threw off their timing. And the Red Sea parted, and Jason Avant threw a leveling block halfway down. And Deshaun danced around at the one-yard line. I'm screaming, I don't care if he dances or get into the end zone. And he did. And to me, that was, number one, the greatest Eagles comeback I've ever seen, the most dramatic finish I've ever seen to a game. And I will tell you to this day, We talk about the great quarterbacks. We talk about Peyton Manning. We talk about Tom Brady. We talk about Aaron Rodgers today. All of these great guys. That was the single greatest half of football I have ever seen played by any quarterback. The way Michael Vick took that game into his own hands and put Deshaun in the position to win it. Merrill, my last question for you is this. Have you thought about what Monday night will be like for you? I have. But you know what? My concentration has not been so much on what happens at halftime or before the game or any of this. I still have 46 numbers of Green Bay Packers that are bouncing around in my head. And I've still got to go on the air and describe this game clearly and at all times make sure people know what the score, the time, the down, and the distance is. And I still have to figure out how they're going to get me down on the field, which they promise they will, <laughs> go on after Jeremiah Trotter, say my three thank yous, and get back and get up into the, the booth, <laughs> and without wasting a single second, say, and it's teed up and we're off yep. the second half. So my focus is more on the game than anything else. You'll probably get back up to the booth and they'll say, okay, stand by, we're on in 10 that's, seconds. That's, exactly. 10 that's probably seconds. how it goes. Merrill, I have one last question sure. for you. What advice do you give to the young people out there who want to be the next Merrill Reese, who want to get into broadcasting? What do you say to those people? This is going to sound crazy, but I tell them if they want to be a broadcaster, whether they want to be a play-by-play broadcaster, and that's the only thing they want to be in broadcasting, don't major in communications. Don't major in communications because it's a needle in the haystack type of thing. But I'm not telling them that they can't make it, but I tell them major in communications if you are interested in a lot of factors, a lot of jobs, writing, producing. And then if this is what you want to be, major in something else, but intern in this, take electives in this, and then give it your best shot. Give it your best shot. And if it happens, I wish you well. And if it doesn't happen, you still have a profession that you can really be successful at. But give it your best. And I told my son when he went out to Hollywood to become a movie editor, I said the most important word is resilience. You must have resilience. You're going to get a lot of no's, but you've got to fight your way back. Merrill, 
Congratulations. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. I'm deeply honored, and thank you guys. You know, same with Trotter, same with Merrill. I could just listen to the stories all day long. And being an Eagles fan, the experience of going to Eagles games, Mel Reese is as almost as much a part of it as the players themselves. He's a legend. He's an absolute legend. And we were just in Seattle this past week, and you know, Merrill apparently went down to go get breakfast down at the market, and he, apparently he just gets swarmed everywhere that he goes. <laughs> I mean, interviews, pictures, left and right. And the person that Merrill is, he always says yes. He's always going to do that. But Merrill is an absolute celebrity, and can you blame the fans? He's just as nice of a person as you can ever meet. So it's really neat to see that whenever we get to travel on the road. He is an absolute treasure to say the very least. So that will do it for this edition of the Eagles Entire Podcast. Make sure you write and comment wherever you listen or download our podcast, whether it's iTunes or Stitcher or right here on PhiladelphiaEagles.com or the mobile app. We'll be back with a new episode next week. So I hope everyone out there has a wonderful Thanksgiving holiday, mm-hmm. eat lots of turkey, and then hopefully on Monday night the Eagles will feast on the Green Bay Packers. For Alex Smith, I'm Chris McPherson. That will do it for this edition of the Eagles Entire Podcast. Thank you very much for listening.